Okay. Is Jesus in the Old Testament? Okay, good. Thank you. And so we're talking about uh, typology, and something we left off saying last week was this, is that we have to, we must read the Bible with eyes that cannot unsee the person and work of Jesus Christ. We must read the Old Testament with eyes that cannot unsee the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we cannot read our Old Testament and close our eyes to the fact that Jesus has come and done what it is that he has done. Uh, the apostles didn't do that. Jesus himself wasn't doing that. New Testament authors were not doing that. I have a couple of quotes here for you. And these quotes I'm giving you are uh, to help with other people's uh, explanation of a simple concept. And so um, these quotes are from a couple of different books. If you're curious about that, I can give those to you. I've only got a handful of them, but um, sometimes I can word things in a certain way that might help you understand. And sometimes it's the wording of other people that might help better bring this idea uh, more fully uh, into grasp, okay? So typology, generally speaking, we're talking about when people, events, and institutions in the Old Testament serve as models of Christ and his work. So not just necessarily the person of Christ, but the work of Christ, what it is that he has done, the work that he has accomplished, but also his person, okay? All right, so, oh, one more thing before I give you the quotes. Uh, when we talk about typology, we talk about the thing that comes beforehand and then the thing itself. Because when you have a type of something, it is the, the person or the event or the institution that is looking forward to Jesus and his work, right? And so the thing that had come beforehand that's looking forward to Jesus is called the type. Christ and his work, the thing that comes afterwards as a fulfillment is called the antitype. It almost seems like that's backwards. I know. It seems like the antitype, it's like that should be the other thing in the type is, but it's, it, the proper way to understand this is the type is the thing that came beforehand that represents Jesus and his work. So that's going to be a person in the Old Testament, an event in the Old Testament, or an institution in the Old Testament that's pointing forward to Christ and his work. And when we see that actually happening in the New Testament, that's the antitype. Okay? Just some terminology. All right, so here's my quote. In all the scriptures, three contexts of biblical hermeneutics. That's the name of his book, and uh, I referenced this last week, but here's his quote. A hermeneutical conviction that God has sovereignly organized history and revelation such that Old Testament people, events, and institutions prefigure the person and work of Christ in concert with their literary genre and history. So all that, uh, I believe I read that last week because I was kind of coming into this conversation. But here's the idea, is that God is the author of history itself. Yes, God is the author of history itself. God is also the author of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so... Working within the literary genre, the historical context, God knew what he was doing when he put a person in place or he made an event happen in the Old Testament, right? Or he established something in the Old Testament knowing perfectly what was to come. You see, God doesn't see time the same way we do. He sees 3,000 years ago as crystal clear as he does 3,000 years from today and today itself. 
right? God sees all of time equally clear. And so for him to prefigure something and, and seeing and knowing Christ, it, that's no problem for God, right? So we have to keep in mind who the author of Scripture is, but not only the author of Scripture, the author of history. Okay, next quote. Uh, typology depends on, the con- uh, depends on the conviction that God is sovereign um, over historical events and the inspiration of Scripture. God has orchestrated redemptive history so that its final shape is Christological. So, led biblical writers uh, and said history in ways that connect people, that connects events, that connects institutions, backward and forward across the canon. And so, that being said, we see something in the Old Testament, we see something in the New Testament, given that God has written all these things and history, it's proper that we see that there's a connection between the two, right? Did anybody else grow up in a context where the Old Testament was 100% removed from the New Testament? Nobody else grew up in that kind of context. It was like, here's your Old Testament stories about Noah and the ark and creation, and here's these other stories about stuff that happened in the Old Testament. Okay, great. Now that you know that, here's the important stuff about Jesus in the New Testament. And that's how it was separated. Here's all these Old Testament stories, and now here's Jesus in the New Testament. And all this stuff is, has nothing to do with Jesus, there's a, oh, isn't it sad to live back in the Old Testament? But then there's the New Testament. So we, we can't look back at the Old Testament with eyes that are covered to the person and work of Christ. This is making sense, right? It should. Here's another quote. Verkler, uh, this was the first book on hermeneutics I ever read. And I guess it was, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago now. Maybe longer. I forget how old I am. Typology is the search for links between historical events, persons, or things within salvation history. Allegorism is different. Allegorism is the search for secondary hidden meanings underlying the primary and obvious meaning of a historical narrative. I gave you an example of that last week when I randomly turned to a passage and started making some kind of allegorical meaning out of it about Christmas ornaments. Do you remember that? Okay. That's allegory. That's looking for some kind of hidden, secret, mystical wisdom in things in the Old Testament. This is very popular. It's a very popular way. I say popular. I don't say correct. A popular way to read the Old Testament is through allegory. Looking for hidden meanings in the Old Testament. Now, what does that mean? Okay. Um, But typology rests on an objective understanding of the historical narrative. It actually happened. Whereas allegorizing imports subjective meanings into it. Okay, so you read an Old Testament story, I read an Old Testament story, and we can come up with two wildly different things about what that means to us today. But that's not how it actually is. Okay? All right, here's another one. For a resemblance to indicate the presence of a type, we remember what that is, then there must be some evidence of divine affirmation of the corresponding type and antitype, although such affirmation need not be formally stated. What does he mean by this? So when you read this, you can tell, okay, he's, he's telling us how we should be reading the Old Testament. You're getting that, right? He's saying, be careful not to do this, but do it within this spectrum. And this is a protection against allegorizing or seeking or searching for Christ in a comma for example, in your Old Testament. 
right? You're looking for Christ at every look, nook and cranny, and so you're trying to cram Jesus in there. And uh, he's saying, but for a resemblance to indicate the presence of a type, there needs to be some kind of evidence. There needs to be some kind of divine affirmation to the corresponding type. If you can't find any kind of correspondence given in Scripture, and you're just pulling that out of nowhere, then you might be allegorizing, right? Okay, next. We're going to do examples next, okay? I'm giving you this, and then we're going to look at some real examples. When we interpret the Old Testament correctly, without allegory or artificial manipulation, but in accordance with Jesus' own teaching, the central message on every page is Christ. That does not mean that every verse is taken by itself contains a hidden allusion to Christ, but that the central thrust of every passage leads us in some way to the central message of the gospel. Okay? What does all that mean? And why is it significant for hermeneutics? And of what benefit is that to me in reading my Bible? It's of great benefit to you reading your Bible. And I want to show you by means of a couple examples. And so all this can kind of start to make sense. I hope that it does. Okay, so first example we're going to give is Adam. Okay? So we're taking, so typology are people, events, or institutions. And so in this case, it's a person. Adam is the type. Jesus is the antitype. And how do we know this? Well, we're taking our examples tonight specifically from ways that the New Testament tells us. I mean, explicit examples. We don't have to guess. The New Testament is telling us. Okay, so uh, in your Bible, if you have your Bible with you, open to Romans chapter 5. What you should have gathered so far from this evening is that there is a proper way to see Jesus in the Old Testament, and there is an improper way to see Jesus in the Old Testament. The proper way to see Jesus in the Old Testament is that there is some kind of divine affirmation to the corresponding link that you have found in the Old Testament. We're not just pulling Jesus out of everything. Right, but there is some. For, there is some kind. It doesn't need to be explicitly stated, but there needs to be some kind of correspondence there to truth, to a historical reality. If not, that's when you get these crazy sermons. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard them, but uh, an Old Testament sermon of some obscure passage, and you're pulling out some kind of crazy meaning, and they say, "I got a message for you today. The Lord gave me a message for you today. You're not going to believe what the Lord told me this means. Do you know what this means?" And that's how you get it, because you can't be wrong. It's subjective. You can't be wrong. No, the Lord told me that's what it means. Oh, okay. How can you argue with that? You're arguing with God. Okay, you there, Romans 5? Romans 5, 12 through 14. It's a very clear passage talking about Adam <coughs> and Jesus. Romans 5, 12 through 14, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. Do you see it in your text? Adam was a type of the one who was to come. 
I'll give you one more here. Shorter. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. It's on the screen for you if you want to look at it. Uh, For as uh, by a man came death, so by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. Do you see the correlation between Jesus and Adam? And how Paul explicitly tells us that Adam was a type of the one to come, Jesus. So do we have our corresponding divine affirmation? Uh, This is explicit. It is explicitly stated here that Adam certainly was a type of Christ. But does that mean then that Adam was a fictional person, that Adam never existed? Since Adam was a type of the one to come, does it mean that Adam is just a story? Is that what that means? No, it means Adam was a real historical figure who really lived on the earth, but he was a type of the one who was to come, who is Jesus. How does that fit together? Well, in its most simple terms, I've put it on the screen like this, is that Adam, who is the type, is the representative head of sinful humanity, whereas Jesus, the antitype, is the representative head of redeemed humanity. Okay? We're familiar with the concept of representative head, yes? That's not throwing anybody for a loop, is it? We've talked about this before. Okay. So, as in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, there's a difference, though, between how those come to be born in Adam and how you come to be born in Christ. The way you are in Adam is different than the way you are in Christ, right? Okay. So this next passage helps us with that. This is all still about Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, same chapter, so verses 45 through 49. And it says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, the last Adam, who is that? That's Jesus, because Jesus is, 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 is the antitype of Adam. So the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. That is, Adam was first and then Jesus, and then the spiritual. The man, uh, the man that was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, so we see these two ideas that that Paul's bringing together. You have Adam and you have Jesus. You have a man, I have it on the next screen. So you have a man who was from the earth and he gives physical life. And then you have a man who was from heaven and he gives spiritual life. And as you bore the image of the man of the dust, Adam, so too that if you are born in Christ, you will bear the image of the man of heaven. You will be changed into his likeness. You will become more like Christ. You will become more Christ-like. You will become mature in Christ. Right? All this, all this stuff makes sense to us. So you have, at, this, is, this is the most simple type and most uh, uh, obvious one that, that, I can, that I wanted to share first because I think it's just so plain. It's, it's pretty obvious here. And so we have Adam and we have Christ representative head of sinful humanity. You were born of the earth, you die of the earth. You were born in him, you die in him, right? You have physical life in him, 
you have physical death in him. But then the last Adam, Jesus, he is a man of heaven. He is not a man of the dust. And so if you have life in him, you're going to bear his image. You're going to have spiritual life in him. And he is the new representative head of all who are in him. Okay? As in Adam, all die. But in Christ, all are made alive. So you want to be found in Christ and not in Adam. Because if you're only found in Adam, you will die. But if you are found in Christ, you will be made alive. Okay? Everyone who is born is born in Adam. Your physical life, you're born in Adam. So everybody is born as a man of the dust. And if you stay a man of the dust, you will die. So you need to be born again, just as Jesus told Nicodemus. Okay? That's Adam. It's a good one. Next one, the bronze serpent. Okay, so this is a, uh, we'll call this an event, because the bronze serpent isn't a person. But it's an, it's an event. It's something that happened, and it is a type of Christ, more specifically a type of the work of Christ. All right. We can find this in uh, John 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do we have our uh, affirmation of correspondence? We do, because John, who is... um, uh, By the way, what comes after John 3.15? John 3.16. A lot of emphasis is given on John 3.16, but there is a huge thing being said in verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, that was only a type of what was to come. But so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. To to see that type properly, what we should do, if there's an allusion to that here in the New Testament, the way to properly understand the New Testament passage would be what? to find the context in the Old Testament story. So if a New Testament author is pulling out of an Old Testament context, where should you put yourself? Back in the context that he's pulling from. So he's understanding the Old Testament story properly, so then we too need to go back to that Old Testament story and see what he's talking about. Doesn't that make sense? Okay, so we'll go to Numbers 21, because that's where the story is about Moses and the bronze serpent. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. I feel like I, I know I've preached on this story before. I just don't remember when. Does anybody remember? Not, I'm not asking if you remember the date, but do you remember me preaching on this? Does anybody remember that? I remember my sermons better than you do. Shame on you. Shame. I know I did. I'm thinking it was an Easter sermon, actually. I think it was an Easter sermon. I don't know how many years ago. Anyway, Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. It's not that, it, the portion we're not, is not that long. So, 
From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea, and so go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. They spoke out against them. And in the New Testament, that, that would be called what? What? Gungus moo. Gungus moo. They were complaining. They were grumbling. Because primarily the grumbling happen, happened against the leaders that God put in place. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food. There's no water. We loathe this worthless food. Okay, so there's their complaint. And then verse 6, So then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that the people of Israel died. And the people uh, came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord to you. Um, I love that they so quickly realize that their complaining has done this to them. Uh, Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, uh, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, he set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent, and he would live. Unbelievable story, isn't it? I mean, that's an incredible story. Okay, so the people of Israel, uh, as they're wandering around, uh, they uh, start to complain, and God uh, then sends fiery serpents, uh, meaning serpents that had venom. And so there were poisonous snakes all over the place, and these poisonous snakes were biting people, and the people were dying. Very poisonous snakes. Okay, so then they realize this is from God, Uh, because they had just witnessed a bunch of plagues on the people of Egypt, right? They know that God works like this. And so they know that God has done this, and so they say, save us somehow, because if not, we're all going to die. So then God said to Moses, okay, well, here's how how the people are going to be saved. Make a serpent and put it on a pole, and everyone who looks at it will live. Simple as that. Everybody who looks at it will live. Amazing. Paul uh, alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 9 through 11. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That word example right there is tupas, type. They were a type. They were a type. They were, they were e- examples. That's, I mean, that's a right way to understand that. They were an example to us, but about the work of Christ and how we're to respond to the work of Christ. So what's happening in this story? I made, you could do this a number of ways, but I, I made a, a couple of observations here about it. I don't know if you can read it or not. I know it's small. Type versus anti-type. I'll just read what happened in the story, and you see if you know another story like this. The people were disobedient to God. They had a mortal wound from a serpent. God provided a singular cure for the people. An object was raised up on a pole, and whoever looked at it would be miraculously cured. Anyone who looked at it was saved, and the others perished. I mean, that is exactly, exactly the human situation, and the work of Christ on the cross. 
man, what a coincidence that that happened like that, right? What a coincidence that God would say, I want you to make a serpent and raise it up on a pole. What a coincidence. And if you just look at it, you'd be saved. Good thing God did that then because he could use that later on. But obviously what we're saying here is that God knew what he was doing when he did this, right? If, if, I'll, I'll, I'll say it a little bit more plainly just so that there's no misunderstanding here that as the people of Israel were disobedient to God, all humanity has been disobedient to God. They had a mortal wound from a serpent. Humanity has a mortal wound from the serpent in the garden, Satan. God provided a singular cure for the people out of his grace, out of his mercy, who is Jesus himself. As the serpent was raised on a pole, so Jesus was raised on a cross. Whoever looked at the serpent would be saved miraculously. Whoever looks upon Jesus in faith will be saved miraculously. If you don't look at him in faith, you will perish, just as the people of Israel did. It's amazing. Okay, so that's a good one, right? All right, let's look at another one. The waters of baptism. 1 Peter 3, 19 through 21. There are some things here that I know raise questions. They always do in this passage. We're focusing on our particular point here tonight, okay? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What are we talking about? How does baptism correspond to that? He's saying, when I get baptized, it's like I'm being drowned like the rest of the disobedient earth. How does baptism correspond to that story of Noah and the flooding of the earth? Well, it does. But what we have to do is make sure that we're thinking about the story in its context before we pull our own meaning from somewhere else. We need to pull our meaning from the story that's being referenced. That's a big thing that I'm trying to say in all of this. If an Old Testament situation, person, institution is being referenced, make sure that we're pulling our context primarily from the Old Testament where it's found, not from your understanding of whatever it is we're talking about but go to their source just as, as they did, right? And pull our meaning from that. Okay, uh, I want to I give a couple more verses about this idea of water and baptism, and I think the idea will become clear about the type and anti-type. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Interesting. So we're, we're taking, an, again, an Old Testament story, and we're, something's happening here. So something happened to them at that particular time that is of relevance to us today. Um, you can go ahead and go to that next screen, and then I'll, uh, I'll read from Genesis 6. So, Here's what we're looking at is the type versus the anti-type. What's the type? The type is that God's people are saved 
uh, as they pass through the waters of judgment unharmed. Those who are not God's people are destroyed by the waters of judgment. So the waters then are waters of judgment. And the symbolism is that God's people are not harmed by the waters of judgment, but they pass through it unharmed. Okay? So in other words, when you are dunked underwater, you come back up because you are God's. You have passed through the waters of judgment. What are we talking about here? Because that sounds a little weird. Well, Genesis 6, 11 through 13. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So, to bring judgment on the earth, God sends water. To bring judgment on the earth, God sends water. Or think about the story of uh, the parting of the Red Sea. Okay? The waters part so that the people of God might pass through on dry ground. So they pass through the waters and safely arrive at the other side. They are God's people. But when, God's, when people who are not God's people attempt to walk through the waters... They do not make it to the other side, but they are destroyed through the water. Okay, is this making sense? This one's a little bit, uh, this, is, this is again situations or events in the Old Testament um, that correspond according to Peter. Uh, as he says, eight people were brought safely through the water. Remember that? That's what Peter said. Baptism which corresponds to this saves you. It corresponds to this. Peter said that. I think he got it right. He is telling us that these stories of people, God's people, passing safely through the waters of judgment corresponds to baptism. But it's not about the removal of dirt from your body. Don't you see it? Let's go to number four here. Last one we'll get to tonight. This is another one that I think uh, we already know, but I just wanted to pull out some, uh, uh, some observations from it. So we're talking about people, events, and institutions, right? I've talked about Adam, who is a person. We've talked about two events, and now we're talking about an institution. I wanted to give an example of each. So we saw a person, we saw events, and now an institution, because these are the types of Christ in the Old Testament. People, events, and institutions. Not all people, events, and institutions. Okay? But here's an example of each. We saw a person, we saw two events, and now we're going to see an institution that is a type of the work of Christ. The sacrificial system. That's a, that's a big institution. Uh, that <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in, that, in those words. The sacrificial system. There's a lot going on there. And so there's several different ways in which Jesus is fulfilling um, these things. And so we'll just look to Hebrews to help us. So if you want to turn with me to Hebrews 9, or uh, if not, it's on the screen. I have the Hebrews 8 passage first, uh, so I guess we'll look at that. Hebrews 8, 1 through 6.
Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus is necessary for that priest to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since these priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So, if you're making any kind of notation or anything, this is very significant. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according, according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the, old, than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So I've underlined several things here to show these, the, the type language, typology language. And so they serve as a copy and a shadow of true heavenly things, right? And so this was a pattern, much more excellent. So there was a thing that wasn't as excellent, but then we have the fulfillment, which is much more excellent than the thing that came beforehand, right? It is better. It is better. So the thing that was beforehand was imperfect. But the thing that came later in Jesus is perfect, much more better, right? Much more excellent. Much more better doesn't make sense. Much more excellent. You get what I mean? Okay, now Hebrews 9. Thus, it was necessary for the copies, there it is again, of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. There's that language again. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Okay, stop right there on that one, Jimmy. Go back to that one. Um, so, there's two things happening here, two fulfillments that we're going to look at. And uh, they're very simple. They're very easy to see. Okay, so um, the first is talking about the temple itself and the holy place. And many of you are very familiar with um, the tabernacle or uh, if we think about the temple or if we're thinking about the tabernacle, if we're thinking about the tent. Um, either way, we're looking at the holy of holies. Now, the most holy place... Uh, is where the high priest would enter once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. But because he wasn't perfect, he also had to atone for his own sins. He also had to make sacrifice for his own sins. And also the high priest changed uh, all the time. And so there was always someone new coming in with new sins. And they always, they had to, it was perpetual. You always had to make sacrifices because there was never a good enough sacrifice. And even the place that the sacrifice was being made wasn't perfect. Because the sacrifice was made here on earth in the presence of God or in the heavenly places. But all this stuff was just copies and shadows of what was to come. Okay? They were copies of the heavenly things and they were purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So there were sacrifices that took place here on earth in the temple, in the holy place, but there's a better sacrifice that took place. And it didn't take place on earth in the presence of God, but in the true presence of God. So there is a, a type 
happening right there, right? So the fact that sacrifices were made in the presence of God here on earth, because remember, the presence of God would come at that particular time to accept the sacrifice, right? And so instead of God coming to earth, instead the sacrifice is up in heaven, in the true presence of God, in the true holy of holies, which only a copy and a shadow of those things can be here on earth. And so this is what he's arguing. And so, uh, but into heaven itself, uh, now to appear in the very presence of God on our behalf. Okay, so then he continues. Nor was it, uh, uh, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest does as he enters every year with, uh, with blood, not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once uh, for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay, so Jesus is fulfilling two different things. Or the text is, is seeing fulfillment of two different things. There was a temple made with the presence of God here that people would enter and make sacrifices in the holy, pla- in the holy place. But that was just a copy of the true heavenly place and the true presence of God in heaven. And then Jesus comes as, I say two, I mean, it's really three things, isn't it? Because then there's the sacrifice. The sacrifice itself were animals, and they were never perfect, and they could never do away with sins. Um, But then Jesus comes as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect spotless lamb. That's why Jesus is called the lamb of God, because that's a type, that's type language. You don't say Jesus is the lamb of God. That only makes sense if we're talking about typology. Because the lamb was sacrificed for the sins of the people. So if Jesus is the lamb of God, he's not just a lamb, he's the perfect lamb of God that truly does away with the sins of the people. But then not only that, Jesus is also the perfect high priest who's not serving in a temple here, but he's serving in the very presence of God now and forever because he never dies. He is our perfect high priest who remains forever and the sacrifice he made was perfect once for all never he never needs to make another one because he is god right remember we talked about the uh the atonement we talked about the shedding of jesus blood about how jesus had to be both man and god because otherwise the atonement wouldn't make sense it wouldn't work he had to be man in the flesh in order to shed blood right because only something in the flesh can shed blood but he also had to be divine because if he was only human, he would have stayed dead. But because he is divine, he bore the wrath of God on himself and it still didn't kill him because you can't kill God, right? So the work was completed and so then he rose from the dead and now he is seated at the right hand of God, but he is still interceding for the people. He is still doing his job as the perfect high priest in the very presence of God, not in a copy or a shadow here on earth. You know, can't get any temple here on the planet. Jesus isn't in a temple. He is in the actual presence of God in heaven. And he is the high priest there. And the sacrifice for the sins of the people was himself, his own blood. And so when we say sacrificial system, wow, that's a big conversation. We could be talking about that for a long time. Uh, and we should be. But in a general sense, I've, I've tried to cover all the bases here just so you can see the different types at work. So there are three different types here at work just in the sacrificial system. Uh, we saw Adam, how he is a type of Christ. We saw uh, the situation with the waters of baptism. We saw the bronze serpent. 
a couple of different events, and then we see sacrificial system here, right? So these are all things that are happening in the Old Testament, people, events, institutions, that are types of Christ and his work. And they're not on accident, they're on purpose. It's not that, oh, that's cute that we can see a resemblance there. But no, it's intentional, and it's the way we see now that the, the New Testament authors were understanding the things that came beforehand. So that's why it's relevant for hermeneutics, because this is how they were understanding those events, that they were looking forward to a perfect sacrifice, looking forward to a man who was not of dust, but a man of heaven. They were looking not forward to just a physical life and then you die, but no spiritual life. We were looking for a cure, but not something that would just save our physical life, but that would give us eternal life. And so all these things happened as an example for us. And so we're seeing them fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. Right? Okay. There's a lot to that, right? I told you last week that we were going to look at uh, the wrong way to read the story of David and Goliath this week. And um, I'm, I'm going to postpone that till next week, obviously. I wanted to get through this first and give us some principles and then uh, next week, we're going to look at the wrong way to read David and Goliath and hopefully do some interaction there with that story and uh, see if you can read it incorrectly first, okay? And uh, then we'll look at a proper way to understand the story of David and Goliath. Uh, the key, uh, key hint, if you want to read the story, the story's not about you. Uh, if you want to go ahead and read it and think, I am not David, as you read it, okay? All right, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll be through for tonight. Lord, thank you for our time together tonight. Uh, I, I know it was a bit technical tonight, and we're talking more about your word than your word itself, but we're seeking to understand your word. And there's a lot of complicated things here and odds and ends and pieces that need to be tied together. And, and, uh, but we're trying to look at how you're working in the scriptures, and not only in the scriptures, but throughout history. And we see your hand at work throughout history, and you're recording these events for us, and you knew what you were doing. And I pray that you would give us understanding, help us to read our Bibles properly as you would have us, and I uh, pray that you would give us wisdom and insight. And the whole reason we're doing this and why this matters to us at all is so that we can be faithful to you and so that we can see you for who you truly are, that we can see our lives for what they truly are and that we can live our lives in obedience in a way that pleases you. And so give us that ability, um, give us help by your spirit, lead us into conviction of your truth. Give us eyes that can see and ears that can hear uh, because that's what we want. We want to be faithful to you. We thank you for our time together tonight. I pray that you would um, help and, and comfort uh, all those who are not here with us tonight. I pray that you would bring us all home safely tonight and again back together on Sunday as we worship you together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.